Uh, everyone, welcome to episode 24 of Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy over here, Vlad. Uh, we have a very special guest today, Jake Hall, who you may or may not know as the Manufacturing Millennial. Uh, we have him in the flesh if you're watching this on video. And, and honestly, it's, it's a little strange to see that you're a real person, Jake. Yeah, right. It's, it's, yes, got, uh, it's got it, my character, you know, character yeah, it, it, on the side. It, well, I mean, it's, it's pretty close. It's pretty close. It is, but you just look so much more lifelike now <laughs> in person. So, so well, welcome to the show, Jake. We're very happy to have you. Oh, man, it's great to be on, Dave. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Jake. Definitely, you know, a pleasure to have someone who's got so much influence in the manufacturing space. I'm sure that many viewers will recognize the face, the caricature, and everything that you stand for. Uh, today, we wanted to talk about careers in manufacturing, but first and foremost, you know, I want to get to know you as a person, right? So not the business manager. I want to get to know how did you get into manufacturing? What path did you take? Was it a traditional path? Did you go to university? And I already have some of those answers, you know, but I want our viewers to get to know you as well. So I'm curious, how did you get started in manufacturing? Yeah. So I would say, you know, one of my biggest influences in manufacturing right away was Lego. Um, the idea of following instructions, building something and then tearing it down and using your own design. Uh, you know, it was that it's that engineering thought process of what it was. And then from Science Olympiad to First Robotics, um, those early stages of introduction around robotics and engineering and programming really what inspired me to go into manufacturing. So graduated high school, I went to Grand Valley State University. I got my uh, bachelor's in manufacturing engineering and minor in biomedical engineering. And from there, it just kind of took off where within West Michigan, I would say you're kind of going to have to move into the manufacturing space. You know, West Michigan has the highest density of industrial robots per capita anywhere else in the U.S. And a lot of that's supplied because we're a tier one, tier two, tier three uh, supplier for the automotive industry across the state. So uh, the manufacturing really was the next step to uh, engineering, graduating of that degree is, is we're in the automation manufacturing space. No, that that sounds uh, that sounds great. I'm I'm curious about the the studies, right? So you pursued a manufacturing oriented engineering degree, and the reason why I'm curious is because, you know, taking this back to myself a little bit, I didn't know what a PLC was or what automation was or what manufacturing was while I went through my engineering degree. So I'm curious, you know, what kind of um, maybe courses you had. Or mm -hmm. how was uh, manufacturing integrated into that engineering degree? Yeah, absolutely. So at the time, uh, there was only four or five different degrees. I knew I wasn't going to do CE or EE or anything like that. So it was definitely on the, the mechanical side of things. So mm -hmm. my decision really was between mechanical engineering and manufacturing. Now, the manufacturing uh, degree, the, the program itself was called product design and manufacturing was the degree that was behind and now the ABA accredited mm -hmm. degree is, is manufacturing. But for me, the reason why I chose that as a course was because there was a lot of product development courses within it. There was a lot of design work. Um, and then on top of that, there was also a lot of electives that followed this program that was PLC programming. It was robotics courses. Um, it was um, Six Sigma lean manufacturing processes. And that, you know, those 
four or five electives, which kind of separated the mechanical engineering degree from the product design. And I could be saying it's completely different now because this was eight years ago. Um, but that those, those programs really excited me more for the degree I wanted to go. And the one thing about Grand Valley that was unique, and they were kind of one of the first universities that uh, did it and more, more, more universities are following was it required co-op. So I was required during my four years of engineering school, I had to take three separate semesters of assigned um, a co-op with a manufacturing or automation company. And this was actually part, you, you earned credits for it. It was built into the program. Uh, so during that time, I worked for a automation machine builder um, for, the, uh, for the two and a half years that those three semesters spaced out in. Um, and that really gave me a lot of experience because it was a heavy robotics PLC and an automation company and, and being able to uh, get your hands on with a lot of custom automation equipment that goes into the manufacturing process was, you know, a dream to have before even graduating. Did the university help you with getting those placements or was 100%. it 100 percent Yep. So oh, that's yeah, awesome. the program set up where they, they reach out to all the different companies in West Michigan and, and in the Grand Rapids area. And it, it wasn't just West Michigan either. I had, I had a couple of buddies who did at Tesla. I had a couple of guys who did it at NASA. Um, so it was one of those programs, but, the, but the, the, the school of engineering itself partners with and certifies the, the program to make sure that it's meeting the demand and, and training that they want to have when, they're, when their students graduate. Um, and a big proponent of that is, does that, does that company have the ability to hire that student once they graduate? Because the interesting thing about um, the, the graduation rate is it was something like right around 99.7% of graduates finishing their senior year have jobs lined up before they graduated. Oh, that's, awesome. Uh, and the, that's awesome. And the other percentage was kids who were going into the master's program um, or, or continued education. So the fact that the school of engineering and line it up where I'm going to have phenomenal experience of real world experience before even graduating. And then the option to continue with that, that company after you graduate is just, it sets up for that first one to two years of a lot of learning, hitting real world, um, you know, experience in a way. And, and let's face it, once, once you graduate, I, I know we're going to talk more about this Vlad and Dave, and I hope we're not going to have too short of a conversation here because I could go on for a long time. Um, the, the degree is only valuable to a certain extent. Um, and I, I have a great story where, where one of my coworkers and I, we were heading down to um, a very large electric car company in the U.S. on Monday. Um, and we were talking about his story where he's a senior controls engineer, but he never went to college. He went and he got his basic uh, journeyman's electrician degree or, or, or certification. He worked under a master electrician. Then under the master electrician, he went and started working for the panel shop. And then from the panel shop, he became a junior controls engineer. And now he's a senior controls engineer, you know, running the, the press upgrade group at, at FZ. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's one of those things where here you have us working side by side. I took the engineering route. He took the, the skilled trades route. And uh, the skilled trades, I would say, doesn't limit you by any means in terms of future opportunity. And I don't want to steer a conversation away, but that's the one thing that I found most exciting was, yeah, this is the degree, this is the process that I took, but by no means is it the correct or the only process. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, um, you know, somewhat of a controversial topic in certain circles, whether you should go for an engineering degree or you should go into like a trade school. There's also, you know, the question of ABET accredited universities, as you had mentioned. And then some companies look at, you know, the technical engineer or what is a technical associate degree, which yep. is going to be a lot more practical and less, uh, I would say, theoretical and yes. companies, for whatever reason, again, I never fully understood why, but they would not choose people who don't have an ABET accredited uh, university. And again, I mean, like my opinion is that some of the smartest people in, uh, I would say, in technical fields come with no formal education, yep. which is really interesting, right? But at the same time, when it comes to these fields where you want to get some hands-on experience, I feel it's very difficult. Um, and I know it's changing, you know, there's different platforms, there's different ways to like simulate your code, whatever, but it's hard to get that hands-on experience without having, let's say, a FANUC robot in a lab or a PLC mm. that's connected to a bunch of these devices. And uh, it's just very expensive, right? If you want to do it on your own. So th there's always, I would say like arguments for either one. Uh, but I, I would say it depends on your personality, right? Like if you can persevere and actually learn because the, the fact yes. of the matter is it's difficult, just like anything else worthwhile doing, it's going to be uh, like a, a difficult experience. There's a high learning curve, I would say. And so if you can get through that, then more power to you. But I would say like the traditional schools certainly provide at least the hardware and the space to um and i think you wouldn't be responsible if you accidentally smashed that robot you know yeah. into a wall or something there's a little bit of a less of a risk i would say yeah and, and it just it goes back to you know i think more and more um manufacturers and companies are not necessarily valuing the engineering degree as what it once was. I think it's one of those things where it's a, it's a clean pass in a sense where, Oh, it's a check mark. So that means they must be valid in a certain sense. But at the same time, I went through engineering school and some of the people that I went through with is like, there's no, way, you know, and, and that's nothing, and that's, that's nothing against the program that they graduated from. But I think it, it goes back to that experience of, I know, where, where we're at, we're, we're, we can't hire enough controls engineers. Mm -hmm. And the last thing that we care about is where you went to school. What we care about is what is your experience in, in, in the market right now? And, and where do you want to go? I mean, do you want to be a senior levels guy? Are you a gold certified ignition guy? Are you Siemens? Are you Alan Bradley? Are you a robot? What's your vision? I mean, there's all these different stuff. The last thing I care about is where did you go to school? <laughs> because mm -hmm. going to school doesn't mean you're going to help me when I need to send you down for a commissioning project. <laughs> yeah. And as you know, as, as I mentioned, based on my experience, a lot of colleges don't have manufacturing specific classes. So it's just, it's hard to get them even if you did go to university. So either way, you would have to upskill someone if they just came out of university with even an electrical engineering degree, right? So yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the value that I think we're seeing more within skilled trades and uh, two-year associate's degrees is there's more mechatronics programs hopping up mm -hmm. in two-year community colleges than there is within universities. Um, and I, I just say that from experience here in West Michigan, I know Grand Rapids Community College, they have a mechatronics program where they teach you FANUC programming, Allen Bradley PLCs, um, how to create engineering drawings, basic <laughs> pneumatics. And, and, and um, Lansing Community College, 35 minutes, 45 minutes east of me, they have like 14 or 16 FANUC robots wow. in their lab. 
I mean, so it's just a whole nother world of opportunity where in West Michigan, I'm saying I'm a little bit different because we are the manufacturing hub kind of in the area. But for other places, I think your best shot is a skilled trade school that has a mechatronics program because those are a lot more common than a lot of sense, as you said, manufacturing focused engineering degrees at universities. No, completely <laughs> agreed. Dave, what do you think of the the two different paths one can take? No, absolutely. And so, so Jake, I, I appreciate, uh, I, I appreciate kind of your perspective. It's, you know, different than many people you talk to, you know, a lot of people who, you know, reach a senior controls level engineer or above, at least that I seem to run into, you know, have an engineering degree. Mm -hmm. And I think especially in the last probably 10, 12 years, it's changed a lot. There's been a lot more of a pushback to trade schools. There's been a lot more push into co-ops. When most of, you know, my friends are going to get their engineering degrees. I'm not sure I know a single one that I graduated high school with who has an engineering degree that like a co-op was even on the table. Um, I know some places that, you know, there was a fifth year co-op and you go in thinking, why would I ever want that? Why would I spend an extra year in school? And you don't realize how valuable it is. So I think that that's very valuable. And I think especially in the last 10 years or so, um, and especially in manufacturing heavy areas, it's one of those, it doesn't particularly matter that you live through four years of college and you can do differential equations and, you know, you, you can live through, you know, a series of semesters with really hard math and physics classes, yeah. because most of the time you're going to come out and there's going to be very little, you know, applicable knowledge to the, this is a PLC, this is a screwdriver, good luck, yeah. sort of, sort of machine down situation. Yeah. So I, I think that that, I think that that's very interesting. I would hope that we see more people continue to go into trade schools, you know, two years. I think that it's a, it's a very good path for most people to get some good technical hands-on knowledge. And worst case scenario, they come out, they get a good paying job. And a few years later, they decide they want to go back to college and, you know, they, they go finish their college degree and potentially look to pivot into, uh, into something else. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the whole thing. I think, for some people, an engineering degree is the right choice, mm-hmm. especially if you like the idea of theoretics and design mm-hmm. and all that stuff, which is, is you know, it's continued schooling and education versus mm-hmm. uh, a, a person who goes, like you mentioned, just to a, 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 a local community college with a degree, mechatronics degree. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's all they need. And yep. then they're also not graduating with forty five to sixty thousand dollars in student debt, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. It's, Absolutely. It's and there's a lot of, and, and there's a lot of manufacturers and companies now who are also developing their own co-op in training mm-hmm. programs. I mean, that's one thing that we have here is we have a co-op training program um, where we take journeymen and we bring them to controls engineers. Uh, and, and we have a full process to do that. And the fact is that we have that program because that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. We had a guy who was a, uh, a journeyman's electrician became a master who then went in the engineering side and now he's more in the management. And he said, hey, we need to create this program because we can't find enough controls engineers. So we have Jake, to that's through own. the, sorry, that's through the university or the company you're working that, that's, for? That's where I work. That's gotcha. where I okay. work. So we simply, we can't find enough controls engineers. So we're, we're training our own. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I think that's what enough manufacturers are going to do as well um, is, hey, if you, if you can't find the resources, you need to be, you need to be a, a part of the problem and well, a part of the solution to the problem and fix it. 
Yeah, I, I really like that idea. I think we're going to see a lot more of, I would say, manufacturers getting involved earlier, right? Because right now, let's say your current interview process in a traditional sense is just a half an hour to, let's say, a couple of hours worth of a conversation before you determine if someone's fit or not, versus I'd say the benefit of engaging them, you know, two years in college or two years out of trade school, you get to know that person, you get to see how they work, you get to participate in their upskill. So I think like there's a lot more of a, of a relationship at that point. You know what I mean? You can not only help them where they want to go, but you can make sure that the, um, the skills are aligned much better, right? Like again, because I graduated again, not knowing what manufacturing was. And I really wish there was maybe someone who could kind of point me in the right direction. I think that's where uh, the industry is going to go for sure. You know, the, the other thing I think is worthwhile bringing up is neither of those as a, a means of getting into the industry. It's it's the amount of resources that are available. And Vlad, I'm going to use your YouTube channel and I'm going to use Tim Wilborn's, you know, YouTube channel as well. Mm-hmm. And, and you guys know Tim too, is, is the fact that more resources are available because of social media, because of these websites like YouTube and other open resources that a lot of people can teach themselves how to program stuff Leading up to it, you know, we, we were talking about IRA with, you know, PLC next, how you have the super low cost introductory PLC um, that pe- people can learn from. And, yep. and there's a lot of lower cost solutions out there where, yeah, Alan Bradley is is is, is the 5,000 pound gorilla and here in the U.S. in the manufacturing industry. But that doesn't mean the fact that you can't learn the basics off of a much more economical learning solution as a person who's teaching themselves growing up. I think that's one thing as well, as we are seeing more and more independently taught people Mm -hmm. how to program PLCs, how to do robotics. And and, and the great thing about that as well is we think of, we were talking before Dave and and Vlad about, hey, we can't crash a thousand pounds, you know, a a $25,000 robot because, you know, hey, that's not on us then. That's part of the program that we're invested mm-hmm. in. But the great thing about this now is more companies are offering simulation-based program yep. mm-hmm. where I can now program a six-axis robot pretty much 95% of the way there mm-hmm. virtually on a simulation, you know, process. And, and granted, we're still growing, but I mean, five, 10 years ago, that was not existent. So in five or 10 years, I have every... I would put a hundred bucks in a can of you know, a pack of beer on it right now. Then five years, I can put on a Microsoft HoloLens mm-hmm. and augmented reality and walk around a virtual robot space at my home and program it with a virtual <laughs> with a virtual. De- I, it, it's going to happen, and that's it's going to happen for sure. Moving, yep. um, and I think that's just it's it's making manufacturing more open source. And I think that's what we need to do as manufacturers. And I'm going off a little bit of a tangent is you're not going to grow in manufacturing unless you begin to opening your doors to new technologies and new solutions and working with other manufacturers. No, for sure. And as you said, like it's becoming easier and easier, right? Like another example I want to throw in the mix is Ignition, right? So Ignition, Mm -hmm. you can get an entirely full free license for up to two hours that you can reset indefinitely, right? So I think there's absolutely no excuse for someone who's in automation to not have at least installed Ignition and played around with uh, the the training, you know, that they provide. So it's completely accessible. And I think, you know, and I hope, and I've been having those conversations or trying to start those conversations with companies like Rockwell. But I really hope that they provide some kind of an environment where students that 
cannot, you know, shell out thousands of dollars for their official training, go and simulate the PLC, write some logic. Obviously, for non-commercial purposes, they're just trying to get into the field. And I think it's going to open up more and more as the companies notice these other ones uh, doing so. It's the business principle, right? You know, when when you think of 3D CAD, SolidWorks is a big one. PTC is a big one. And then Autodesk Fusion is a big one. Well, what Autodesk did years ago is they partnered with First Robotics, uh, US First, and they gave them free licenses for every high school student to learn that program. And you can go online right now and download a software where if you do under $100,000 a year in commercial value, you can have this software for free. You know, talk about... I can be non-existent, not, not familiar at all, but I can now go on YouTube and watch thousands of hours of tutorials and teach myself how to be a 3D modeler for equipment. Yeah. And, 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 and I think the more companies follow that process, the more they're going to be successful long-term. Why do we think FANUC, for example, is literally donating thousands on thousands, hundreds of LR mate robots, you know, the yellow robot I have on the shelf behind me to universities and colleges, because they say, Hey, they have that experience. When they get to a manufacturer, a small to medium sized manufacturer, that's introducing their first robot. Who are they going to pick? Well, obviously the one they used in college, because yep. that's what they're familiar with. Um, and, and that's what more manufacturers are going to be. Well, that's what more uh, product manufacturers are going to need to do is introduce more free demo based products mm-hmm. and stuff for people to learn from. Um, because let's face it, the, 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 the fortune 500 companies that are out there, the fortune 1000, the fortune 2000 companies, they're already automating. They already have PLCs. They already have controls engineers, but they're a very small portion of American mm-hmm. manufacturing. The, the larger portion of American manufacturing, when you look at like 70% of you know, us manufacturers are higher, don't even have a robot or PLC. That's the giant market that's out mm-hmm. there. So how can companies begin to, you know, breach that market? I think that's by a lot lower cost resources that are, are a lot more expensive where a smarty medium says manufacturer, they want to be able to afford a systems group like where I work to come mm-hmm. in and do that. But they could have a much more, you know, person who's starting out from a community college support their needs 100%. Yeah, no, I like that initiative from Fanuc, right? Like they're probably losing a few dollars by donating those robots to universities, but ultimately they're upskilling engineers. And as you said, once they hit the floor on the manufacturing side, there's going to be one platform that they're familiar with and that they know very well. And the chances are, you know, through the chain of command, they will recommend that solution because they do have that knowledge. And again, I really think that some of these OEMs change their approach and i wouldn't say like copy that same model but take maybe a a spin or figure out how to engage students a lot more because again it's very difficult i would say as a um as a starting point to pay for some of those classes as a student and as you said with the with the loans that you're already incurring it's uh it's always a challenge yeah absolutely 
No, no. I think that that makes, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think we could continue to go down this path for like seven or eight more hours, Jake, but, <laughs> uh, but, but I feel like I need to ask kind of the burning question that I imagine much of the people watching us and everyone listening is wondering is so, so how did you go from your career path of, you knew you wanted to be in manufacturing. So you got your engineering degree, spent some time working for a, a machine builder. Um, how, how did you go from that to becoming the manufacturing? Millennial, millennial and being that caricature we all know. Yeah. So from graduating college to up to about a year ago, I worked for an industrial distributor selling PLCs, photoelectric sensors, robotics, mm -hmm. um, the kind of world of automation. And I attended a variety of conferences and trade shows. And throughout this process, I said, wow, there's a huge underrepresentation of the younger generation. Mm -hmm. When you look at the grand scheme of things of, um, Millennials and Gen Z is not in manufacturing. And there's, you know, there's a huge uh, disproportion of 45, 50 plus compared to 25 and 30 and under. Um, so I said, well, I'm a millennial. I love manufacturing. I'm just going to come up with this name and it fit. And basically, I from a couple of things where I just watched people doing the same thing and how they created a personal brand, not even necessarily in manufacturing, but in the YouTube space. Because the, the, the influencer personal brand has been out there for a long, long time, years. I mean, Instagram people and YouTube people making tens of millions of dollars a year becoming influencers. But in the manufacturing space, it was very minimal. Um, there, there's, a, there's a few out there, like you guys have been doing this a lot longer than, than I have. Um, but, you know, I can count on, you know, a couple hands manufacturing influencers. And so the idea of my personal brand developing as a, a character of something that's different because everyone on LinkedIn has this, you know, fancy tie suit background with the, you know, tilted 45 degrees, getting that picture on LinkedIn. I said, that's not me. I'm a millennial. I'm outspoken. I'm super passionate. I'm super outgoing. What's recognizable? Well, I'm going to make a, you know, a character that's a little bit different because that's fun. I'm going to wear my blue Cubs baseball cap because everyone recognizes the Cubs logo. And when everyone sees a Cubs baseball game or another hat, they're going to think of me. So it's the idea of that personal branding, which has kind of grown the idea of the manufacturing millennial. But really my goal setting forth and really when I said I'm going to kick off March, April of 2020, when I really started the manufacturing millennial was I'm going to drive more awareness to manufacturing and automation via social media. I'm going to drive more awareness to the younger generations as manufacturing being a uh, a, a, a fantastic career choice and a promising career choice that's going to allow you to grow and succeed for the, the rest of your career. And then the third point was I'm going to drive new technology and automation to manufacturers to be more competitive, as I think someone, you know, mentioned here about reshoring back to America, driving automation. But at the same time, technology creates awareness and attraction to your workspace. And millennials and Gen Zs are not going to come and work for a manufacturer that is using equipment from 35, 40 years ago, because their cell phone's not even two years old until they get a new one. Um, and, and so that, that was kind of the premise of this is this is my focus. This is what I'm going to stay on. Um, 
And it's going to be about manufacturing and automation. That's that's just what I'm going to talk about. That's what I'm going to share. Because there's other people, social people on LinkedIn that they just kind of share anything underneath the sun around technology. And that's just not me. I want to be a very focused person. So when people think Jake Hall, they think manufacturing millennial, that's that's what it's about. Um, and from there, it's just, it's just, it's grown, you know, um, amazingly, you know, I've, I'm 21. Uh, I haven't even checked it a couple of days. Um, you know, 21, close to 22,000 followers. Uh, so, you know, gaining 15,000 followers in the last eight months. Um, you know, I, I think when I started back in March of 2020, I had 400 connections on, on LinkedIn. So a year and a half, you know, over 20,000, uh, new followers. And it's just been a really, authentic, exciting process of putting content out there. And if people like that content, they can follow me. Um, and, and from then it's just grown working with other manufacturers, you know, talking about market accessibility and how they can do a better job leveraging um, new content without, you know, I would say doing the video data sheet because so many manufacturers these days and companies it feels like you're just watching a data sheet talking about a product where you're not engaging. There's nothing exciting about that. And you're not addressing the industry problem. And that was a big thing as well is companies and manufacturers and like what you do, Vlad, and what you do, Dave, is we talk about the problem industry and the industry, not the product. Now, the product can be a solution to the problem, but what needs to be addressed is the problem that a lot of manufacturers are facing right now. And part of that's um, just you know, the skill gap, part of that's the labor shortage, part of that's the, the overall investment in high automation right away as a high cost, as a first, you know, it's a large risk. So driving those questions is kind of just how my brand has been developed, bringing awareness to manufacturing and into automation. I smile because you've nailed so many things, you know, that I've seen in manufacturing uh, right on the head, but uh, no, it, it's for sure. I think there's many challenges, but with that, you have many opportunities, right? Like I think that manufacturers, again, are realizing how they need to adapt to the younger generations. Uh, we do constantly get hit, I would say, with the PowerPoint decks where I'm, you know, I'm genuinely excited sometimes about a product that uh, that they're going to demo and I sign up to this webinar and, you know, someone just uh, shows me the slide deck and here's the feature number one, here's the feature number two. But yeah, like there's definitely a lot of, I think, opportunities uh, to be to be seen, and I I really hope that they take your recommendations seriously because I think uh, we can certainly change for the better. But I do want to ask you, you know, on the branding side, because I think a lot of um, engineers, technicians, people who have landed their first job, maybe still trying to get into the field, are watching this, and the question that always comes back is, how do you, um, or I guess like, what are your thoughts on how they can build themselves on let's say social media in general, but more precisely on LinkedIn, what would you, let's say if you're looking for to hire a young controls engineer that's going to either work on PLC projects, that could be SCADA, Ignition, whatever, what would you be looking at when you go to their profile? What kind of things can they do to grab your attention perhaps? Yeah, well, it's a couple of things. I, I think I'll kick it off with saying people buy from people, they don't buy from companies. Mm -hmm. Um, so whenever you're doing on your personal LinkedIn profile, it should be about you and what you're doing and what you're growing and how you can begin to form and leverage yourself as a subject matter expert. And in a sense of 
share what you're passionate about and show what you do on a daily basis is something that you're actually familiar with and you have an understanding of. I think uh, a lot of times people out there, they create a resume and they just say, hey, I got five years of experience. That's great. What did you do? What were you involved with? What, what are you doing to make sure that you are staying on top of what new technology is out there, what standards are out there? Um, and, and just the, the basic, I would say, if, if I were to give three pointers on LinkedIn to say, here's how you can become more successful and prime yourself for your next job, be active on LinkedIn and, mm-hmm. and, and interact with new content and um, you know videos on, on companies that you're working with. Um, connect with people that are in the same industry that you are, that you could see as a potential customer or a potential company that you could work for. Um, and then the third one is, is create your own thoughts and engagement. You know, I'm not saying you need to go out there and produce content and video like what we do on a daily and a weekly basis, but going out there and share it, finding an article from the robot report or from the International Federation of Robotics or from A3 and going out there saying, hey, here's a news report. Here's my thoughts on it. What are you? And you're engaging conversation. That's where people are going to say this person's creating value to the industry beyond of just doing it as a job. And I think that's just going to give you a leg up. And, and especially in areas where going back to you don't have that quote unquote engineering degree. But if you're one of those people who says, hey, I'm a subject matter expert, you want to talk about what is happening in the world of autonomous mobile robots and AMRs and all the acquisitions that have been happening, the fact that Zebra paid like a hundred million dollars for Fetch, you know, a few months ago for this astronomical amount. That's where conversations where you as a value can lie to a manufacturer end user because you're staying on top of, of what's happening in the industry. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with those points. And if I, if I may add like one extra item to that and again this is just my thought but i i think engineers are inherently interested in learning things Mm -hmm. so i particularly like i know that a couple of people post this but when they build a panel right like they have their layout and they they selected certain devices i like to see how people are doing things differently because ultimately in our space there's a thousand ways to skin a cat so to speak and so i always you know have like questions for people like well why was this like selected like that because it gives i think engineers an opportunity to learn from each other and understand why things were done in a certain way because there's always a reason right it's just it's not always obvious from a simple picture but it gives you an opportunity to learn i think so anything that's kind of thought and learning provoking it's like pulls me in at least it it generates discussion yes you know and it generates the ability to continue to learn i think as an engineer or someone who goes into manufacturing kind of has that mindset of continuous learning is something that i think fits a lot of us as a personality yeah, and there, there's different uh, there's different ways. I think like Dave has experimented quite a bit with uh, posting polls. So I think like mm-hmm. it depends on, as you said, who you are and what you're comfortable with as well, right? Not everyone's going to pick up a camera and sound. I would I would say like polished tomorrow, but uh, what's important is find your own. Uh, I'd say medium and just uh, work through it, right? Like because even for you, it was I'm assuming a journey. It took a lot of uh, effort to figure out what works, what makes sense, and decide on on where to go. Absolutely. No, no, I would agree with all of those things. Uh, and just uh, kind of to both of your points, I would say that building a brand or, or 
building your influence on LinkedIn. It's not an overnight thing. There are many people that I'm sure we've all seen that will go, they'll come out hard, they'll post 10 things a day, you know, for three months. And then five years later, you're like, don't I remember I saw this person a few years ago and they're just gone. So it's, uh, you know, your career uh, and your brand, as we're talking to now, they're, they're all the long game. It's the find ways to do a lot of this sustainably. And I know Jake puts out great videos. I, I think it's just about every day or every day. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember you talking through the process of building those videos. And, you know, that's something that you've obviously got knocked down uh, to be able to put out regularly. And that was honestly part of the reason why Vlad and I came to put together uh, that this stream turned into podcasts was so that we could find a way to sustainably, you know, have really good, interesting conversations with groups of people, uh, many of whom, you know, maybe the 50,000 people watching or the the few thousand people watching would not have been able to know uh, and and wouldn't know from. And so for us, it's the find a way to do it sustainably over the long term. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to discuss, Jake, a little bit uh, on your current role. So okay. I know we talked uh, we talked about how you got into manufacturing, but what are you doing now? Can you give us a better idea? I think we talked a little bit that you're looking for certain individuals in the automation space, but what are you like responsible for? What are you excited for? What, uh, what are you doing? Yeah, so I work for a company called Fine Zelstra. Within that group, there's a systems integrator group. Um, where we have locations in Michigan and the Carolinas and Tennessee and Ohio. Um, As a business development manager, my main focus is on generating opportunity with new companies, new new companies that we've never done uh, work before. And that could be everything from um, modernization of old PLCs that we're modernizing to, to new ones that are not 25 years old anymore, to preventative maintenance, condition monitoring, um, to really doing... um, uh, a full transformation of a factory floor. Everything from taking their 45, 50 machines that aren't connected anymore and then bringing them up um, to a, a SCADA system and having them all communicate together and go to the cloud. So really what, what, what I have is I am the person that initially generates that conversation. And then once that conversation is generated and once an opportunity is identified, then we bring in the team of CSMs and senior controls engineers and application engineers who follow behind me um, and we'll put together proposals and scopes. But for for us as a company, um, we focus on really two different groups. We have our small to medium-sized manufacturers, which we support locally here. And then we have a selection of about a dozen national accounts that we work at, everything ranging from... um, SCJ to PepsiCo to JBS, um, you know, some the billion dollar, uh, you know, 50 plus locations in the US type companies and uh, help with them. We really team with them on creating an automation roadmap. So we'll go in there, we'll do full uh, uh, floor assessments, factory assessments, everything from ITOT to the network to the infrastructure. And we'll have a team go out there and, and be on site for two weeks, designing a full uh, roadmap of saying, hey, this is what your next 36 months looks like uh, to hit that digital transformation. So it's it's some really exciting stuff um, that we're facing. But then again, you know, it's one of those things where I cannot find enough senior controls engineers. I can't find enough panel builders. I can't find enough technicians. I can't find enough people who know FANUC and AVB 
robot programming or Siemens or Allen Bradley or Beckoff right now is a huge one right now. That's, you know, you're having a hard time finding people with Beckoff experience. Um, and then of course, you know, the idea of, of Capware, Wonderware, Ignition, um, MES platforms, the, the whole, really the whole nine yards of automation, um, everything from the sensor all the way up to the, you know, the, yeah, so people still use the idea of the Purdue model, um, you know, level one to level five, all the way there, even though kind of IIoT kind of changed that whole process of I could take any device and bring it up to a high level right away. So if you're listening right now and you've got those skills that Jake ah. mentioned, you know where to send your resume. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, well, no, that's that's interesting for sure. You know, and, and I think the shortage is uh, being felt all over North America, at least I'm not, um, you know, very well-versed in the European markets, but I would assume it's uh, it's in a, in a similar situation for sure. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I want to talk about, you know, from that perspective in like career development, how do you uh, look for people? You know, do you post on your website? Do you use recruiters? Do you reach out yourself again? Because I think a lot of people are trying to figure out what's the best way, again, to put their foot forward and um, find those positions. Uh, yes, yes, and yes. Okay. Okay. So it's really a bit of everything. There's recruiters out there. Um, we have our website, we have our own HR, you know, uh, I, I think what they call them is like a people, people's team. I'm not for sure. There's a bunch of fancy nerds. Anyways, it's a group of people who, who work at FZ who just their job is to find people. And then of course, a lot of it's just connections on LinkedIn too. I just had a person message me, um, on Monday about an opportunity. We got his resume and he had his first interview yesterday. Um, so it's, it, things move fast in the industry just because of the demand that's out there. Um, but yeah, it, really every space that's out there, we have people constantly searching Indeed. And, and um, you know, there's another one out there, Factory Fix, which is another company um, mm-hmm. that I've talked with before, but they're kind of doing their own unique search on, um, and opportunities that way to, to find, you know, new people and for hopefully attract uh, people who are looking to come to their website and apply. So Interesting. Interesting. I haven't heard of that uh, website. I'll, I'll post a link and if anyone's interested in checking that out. Yeah, but it's, it's a community of guys here on, uh, here on LinkedIn as well that started up that company, Factory Fix. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really the spread of stuff because it's one of those things where you got to, you got to hit a little bit of everything to make it work. Um, it's, it's not one thing that's gonna, that's gonna bring in the people and the man that you need. It's, it's a little bit of everything. No, that makes sense. We got a couple of comments that we somewhat missed that I want to read out. So Tony mentioned, uh, and this was an earlier comment, so I apologize for missing this. He said, that is one thing I love about the controls engineering route. Usually employers are flexible with education versus experience. They're usually a lot stricter with mechanical or electrical engineering roles, which is strange because controls engineering is accumulation of electrical, mechanical, and even some computer engineering. And I think that's a very interesting point too, right? Like even in the roles that you've mentioned, you typically want someone who not only knows how to program a certain piece of hardware, but understands the components and also has at least some, uh, I would say like mechanical or manufacturing exposure to be able to understand the process, right? And I think that's a conversation that doesn't happen very frequently, but the, the truth is there is a learning curve to understanding the process side of things. It's not enough to, again, I think we talked a lot about understanding, let's say ignition, and I think that's the the key to the door 
but your learning doesn't stop there because once you're on the manufacturing floor, in order to implement some of those projects, you need to understand the process uh, to a certain degree. Obviously, you're not an expert in um, in it from day one, but it, it, there is a learning curve. So that is a very good comment. And then Dan also said, Dave just described me. I haven't been able to post in a while. So Dan, uh, you probably know him on LinkedIn as well. He's He was fairly active for a while and then kind of, I guess, got really busy. I think he took a role from being a professor at a university and now he's working back in uh, in manufacturing and in an operational role, if I'm not mistaken. But it, it's an interesting, you know, like how careers pivot as well. So one day you could be doing one thing and then, you know, like you went through an interesting transition where you're doing a lot more marketing, I would assume, and outreach to uh, to these companies versus a very traditional like technical role where you're more focused on uh, on implementation. And to that point, I wanted to ask you what, um, you know, as you grow uh, from, let's say, an engineer to a senior controls engineer. And then we can also talk about management level. But I'm curious, what would you want to see um, in that transition, right? And I think the the standard answer is I want to see three to five years of experience, but I think that's really not enough. Like, what would you look in a in a person that's ready for that senior controls engineering role versus just being in a controls engineer? Diversity in your knowledge. I would say, you know, three to five years of experience on Alan Bradley is fantastic. But if you can say I have Alan Bradley, some Siemens and some Beckoff. Um, I think that qualifies you more because you're not just a, um, a one part solution. You're, you're a much more valuable per, uh, individual that can bring experience on, on multiple fronts. And it's maybe it's not just PLCs, it's PLCs and robots or ignition adding that to your level. I think creating diversity in your skill set is what really brings you from a, a, a level one to a, a senior guy. What about like on the human side, would you have any expectation of that person leading or like taking charge of more junior engineers and like, you know, understanding how well they fit like in a team more so than, I mean, obviously than a junior engineer, but do you have those expectations of those, uh, of senior controls engineers? It it really varies Um, and, and varies from person to person. There's some senior level guys that work for us that are not great, um, personal people. But I can put them on something and say, read through this and tell me what it means. They can do that fantastically. And I, I, have, a, I have a question I need to have around batch mixing for food processing. Fantastic. Can you lead a group of people? Absolutely not. But he is definitely a senior level guy who can answer those questions. And I have some senior level guys who, senior controls engineers, who aren't as experienced but they're really good at navigating the process of a customer. Um, and it really, it really varies of, I, I hate this idea of, you know, gatekeeping where you have to have a checklist to become a, a title because at the end of the day, in, in my opinion, I think a title is a title. I could throw whatever I want behind my name and it's not going to change what I can do for a company. And it's not going to change what a controls engineer. And granted, Things are different at different manufacturers and companies. You know, we're we're 600 employees. Go work for a company that's 25,000, 50,000, like a Ford. Yeah, a level one, two, three is different. Um, but the same day, you know, if you're level three and you're not performing, you're an out, a level one's going to outshine you. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of the day, it's one of those things. Titles are great, but titles are not your definition of what you can bring 
um, to the company. Because at the end of the day, your work is, as a controls engineer, your work is what shows. If you're on a project and you're tasked to program something, you're, you're, you're tasked to design an ignition screen for a company um, and you can't do it, I don't care what title you have, you can't do it, <laughs> you know? And, that, and that's one thing too. So, I mean, at the end of the day, for a lot of people here, don't get caught up in titles. Mm-hmm. Um, show your diversity and knowledge. And I think that that brings a lot more to the industry. No, I think that's a, that's a, that's a good point. You know, I think it's just easier to silo some of those positions and kind of, I would say even in my perspective to look forward to something and be able to like aspire like, Hey, well, I want to grow in that specific role. And like, what do I need to, uh, to make it happen just to have that maybe mental checklist and understanding of where, uh, one wants to go, right? Because I think it's not as transparent as one would hope. And again, like for good reasons, I would say, but at the same time, I think it's good to give people some clarity of what the expectations might be so that they know how to align themselves and work towards uh, something like that, right? Absolutely. Dave, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? I think those those are all good points. And I appreciate Jake mentioning how some people are, are better at, at some items than others. I, I would all, I would make the point that going from a junior to senior controls engineer is probably less about your ability to lead a team than going from a senior controls engineer to a manager, or you have, you know, operational control of this facility or this shift. And so I would say junior and senior is typically more about skills and knowledge. And then kind of the step above that, um, unless you're going deep into an SME route is going to be uh, is going to be more about your people skills. And, and that all depends. You know, there, there are lots of people who are very good individual technical contributors who absolutely do not want to lead groups of people. Um, and the worst thing a company can do is to try to force really good technical people into a manager role and then everyone fails. And then you lose the really good technical person because they're like, I don't want to do this. I wanted to be the technical person. You want me to be the manager. I'm going to go take a technical role somewhere else. And then we're back to, you know, square negative three. Uh, But, uh, but, but no. And so, so Jake, I I have a, I've got kind of the inverse question of that. So towards the beginning, we talked a lot about needing more people in manufacturing. And so I recently drove through parts of Michigan and Indiana and was shocked by the number of billboards I saw. And I was honestly shocked that, you know, some of the manufacturing jobs that have billboards up are paying 24 bucks an hour and a $5,000 signing bonus. And I'm thinking to myself, man, if I was 18 years old, my life might've been very different, but how, how do we go about motivating the next generation of people to think manufacturing is maybe cool, maybe sexy, maybe something other than what dad and granddad did growing up and smelled bad and were greasy when they came home? How do, how do we go about motivating them? I think it's, it's a couple of things. One, it's um, disposing the myth that manufacturing is this dirty, dark, dangerous environment that only dumb people work at. Um, and that's not the case anymore. Manufacturing is one of the most innovative industries that are out there that are driving the latest and greatest in technologies and automation um, and, and, and new stuff. I mean, the fact that you're looking at companies like Boston Dynamics, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, was is a robotics company, but they're designing equipment now to work in the automation distribution and manufacturing space because that's the demand. What we need to do to drive this ideology away that, Sorry, 
I thought I had my phone silent. Um, what we need to do to drive away this, this myth or this, this idea that manufacturing is in this attractive industry is begin to implement new technology. Um, and why are people still writing instructions and work down on paper instead of using digital tools? Like, you know, on, on my phone, I can follow my work instructions this way. Um, why, why are we doing um, manual processes of stacking boxes on pallets when we could automate that process? You're not going to attract the, you're not going to attract the next generation of workforce when they can go and work for other manufacturer or, or, or other industries out there that are more high tech than what we're currently at. The, the, the Gen Z and the, the manufacturing, uh, the, the, the Gen Z and the millennial mindset is based around technology, around instant access to information and around um, really working with our, with in our fingertips and working smart. Um, if you're a manufacturing company who isn't using those resources and leveraging the new technology, you're simply just not going to attract that generation. Why do you think so many people want to go work for SpaceX and Tesla? It's not because the, you know, the, you know, everyone wants to go work 70 hours a week. It's for the fact that they can get that experience working on bleeding edge technology and bleeding edge manufacturing. Um, and, and I think, more manufacturers and companies need to follow suit and say, how do I make my company more attractive and, and create it where the people who are coming to work for my company feel a purpose of what they're doing. People go work for SpaceX because they have the purpose of the one goal of designing a system that eventually will land on Mars. That's SpaceX's goal. They want to inhabit Mars. And anyone who comes to work for that company is driving that purpose that way, the way for SpaceX, people go to work for, excuse me, for, for Tesla. People go to work for Tesla because they want to create leading edge high-end electric vehicles. Yep. That's why they do that. So why do other manufacturing companies not leverage that same mindset of millennials and Gen Z want purpose in their daily jobs? It's not just about a paycheck. Um, and, and how do you change that mindset? And I think the more people who begin to leverage robotics and autonomous mobile robots and AGVs and AI, and a world of industry industry 4.0 solutions, that's going to make them more attractive, and that's going to make people want to become part of manufacturing. I like that. You know, I think that's that's really uh, a very big part of why people don't see manufacturing as an attractive industry. And I think you know one thing I'll add to that is that there the I would say the action of changing should be genuine, from the sense that you could tell someone at an interview. You know that we're definitely looking to change we're trying to implement these solutions you're going to be the one who's going to drive that change and once the engineer comes onto the manufacturing floor and has all these great ideas like you said sometimes some of these manufacturers have equipment from 30 years old right so someone could write a great plan here's where we're going to go in two years we're going to change this and that and ultimately a lot of times they either get shut down or not heard i feel like well enough and that's where they lose that interest, right? Because they were genuinely interested in working with those new technologies and they were sold on that idea. And the reality was, again, because I can only speak to that because I've seen it happen and I've seen colleagues speak to that. They were essentially not allowed to make the changes that they were um, initially brought on or told to be brought on to do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um and so, so this is a great conversation. We'll have to uh, 
we will have to find some more time to uh, potentially bring Jake back to uh, to continue the conversation. Uh, Jake, as we're wrapping up, we're going to ask you the same questions we, we ask everyone else. And yep. uh, I like to say this is our unsponsored Audible uh, segment because, uh, as, as I'm sure you know, Jake, everyone absolutely loves to read and listen books listen to books. I think you said yourself, you are a big audiobook person. And so this is the point in time where we ask for your, uh, your recommendation and Vlad's going to go on his phone and buy the audio book. There you go. Um, I'll give, I'll give two books. Um, Jim Collins, good to great. And uh, never split the difference is the other one. Those are my, those are two books where if you are, and that's by uh, Chris uh, Voss. Chris Voss. Chris Voss, yeah, that's right. Both great books. Yep. So uh-huh. th- those are my two recommendations. And I'll, I'll go back and I'll listen to Never Split the Difference once a year. It's a really good my, book. It's, it's a really it's good, I think like it's a book. mindset more than, you know, anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, really good book. I'd recommend it as well. But yeah, negotiation process, especially if you want to be that, level one guy and, and make your way up in a company. That's, that's a book that's going to help get you there. Absolutely. No, that, that is a very good book. Um, and so my other question uh, for you, Jake, is I, I think we talked in your role at FC, if you are a controls engineer of any sort um, and looking for a new position, th- they should reach out. And I would imagine if you are a company who currently does not work with FZ, who wants to have a conversation with Jake about doing some work, they, they should reach out. Um, who should reach out to you uh, for the manufacturing millennial? Say for the million, really anyone, anyone who has a passion for automation or manufacturing, I love to connect with you. I love for you guys to follow. I love just to you know continue to share the exciting things that are happening in the industry. If there are companies out there that want to drive market accessibility and and work with you know quote unquote an influencer like myself, you know reach out to me and let's drive ways that we can bring market accessibility and market awareness to the problems that you guys are, uh, you know, solving in the industry. Um, and, you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Jake. Uh, Vlad, any last comments before I wrap us up? No, thank you, Jake. Really appreciate it. It's great to, uh, to follow your journey and I'm see, I'm sure we'll see a lot more of it on LinkedIn. Sounds great. Thanks guys for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. Uh, Everyone. uh, Thank you for listening. This has been episode 24 of the manufacturing hub with me, Dave, and this guy over here, Vlad, Uh, please feel free to give us a five-star review. If you guys listen to podcasts, because we're semi-professional podcasters and are supposed to make the ask now, Uh, we'll see you guys next week, uh, August 18th for the next live show. And whenever we, we drop on the podcast apps. Thank you everyone.